Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 147 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 3rd of April 2016, entitled The Genesis Account Part 24, and the Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 to 9. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. We'll be taking our scripture reading from Genesis chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. We'll be reading down through verse 9. I invite you to stand with us this morning as we honor the reading of God's holy and righteous word. Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis chapter 11, sorry, beginning in verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. They said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. They had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar and they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. The Lord said, Behold, the people is one. They have all one language. This they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Father, we are so privileged, so grateful, so thankful to be in your house this morning, to have your word before us that we know, Lord, that you have preserved for us through the years. We are so thankful, Lord, to have your spirit within us. And Lord, it is he that we seek to give us understanding this day to speak to our hearts because, Lord, we need not the words or wisdom of man. But Father, we need that which you have for us that you alone can give to us. Father, you know the hearts of each and every individual here today. Lord, we don't even pretend to be able to, uh, to be able to do anything to, uh, to help to be able to meet those needs. But Lord, as we come, we come, Lord, depending upon you, looking to you, seeking you, Lord, to be able to, to know that today every person's needs can be met. Every life can be touched. Every heart can be changed. Father, that in some way, when we leave this place today, that we can be more like our Savior more like Jesus than when we came. We give you the praise and the thanks for it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. For those of you that have not been here throughout the course of our series, we're really covering a lot of ground and this all began way, 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 way back a few years ago on a series on contending for the faith. Contending for the faith that we live in a day when it is us, we, the believers, the children of God, that have been given the responsibility to stand up, to be counted for the faith that he has delivered to us. 
the one faith, the once for all faith that has come through the word of God. And of course, we've spent much time looking at, okay, what is that faith? What is the foundation? What are the fundamentals of that faith that we must stand for? And over these times, we've looked at a lot of things that some things are foundational. They are fundamental to the Christian faith that you cannot take them away and the Christian faith still remain as God gave it to us. But of course, we've also looked at many of those things because men can also go to the point that they split and divide and make each other enemies over things that are not foundational, that are not fundamental. Some things that may be important to us as a church, if we're to be in one mind and one accord, but it doesn't mean everybody that doesn't see it or do it the way we do it is our enemies. Also, some things that are important to us as individuals. We all come from different backgrounds, different struggles, different things that sometimes there are things that are important to us that may not necessarily be to everybody. But in all of this and all the things that we have covered, we have come down to our last issue that we've been looking at is the Genesis account in the Word of God. And may I say to you that the Genesis account, there are many things in the Genesis account that are fundamental and foundational to the Christian faith. We've looked, as we've talked about this Genesis account, we've looked at a number of things and we looked at the authority of God's Word. We look at the assertion of God's very existence. We look at the absoluteness of God's creation, that he created everything that is from nothing. And folks, he did do it in six days. We looked at the advancement of the human race, the accountability of mankind, the administration of home life as God meant it to be. We looked at the acuteness of man's fall when he fell from that perfect state that God created him in. We looked at the abolishment of Satan, the atonement of sin, and the acceptance of offerings to God. And most recently, we've been looking at the affirmation of God's judgment. We say sometimes judgment scares us. But of course, most judgment that we know is man's judgment. Man judges many times for all the wrong reasons and in all the wrong ways. We've been singing about it this morning. We've looked at a number of things here already. And as we've looked at God's judgment, we looked and we saw that there is positive judgment and there is punitive judgment. Just, we judge things every day of our lives. You know, we judge things from the simplicity of when we, when we arise in the mornings, we judge whether or not that we're going to wear these clothes or that clothes, whether they're going to, to look right on us or whether they're not, whether they're appropriate for what we're doing today. We judge things when we go to put them in our mouth to feed ourselves, whether we think that it's, it's good or it's bad. We pass judgment on these things. Sadly, many times we begin to pass judgment on all the people that we meet, whether they're good people or bad people, and whether we like them or whether we don't. But we've looked at a number of things already and we've said the problem is that so many times in our judgments, we are judging with partial information. We're judging with wrong information. We're judging many times because we don't have all the information that we need and we can only pass judgment on anything, whether it's a court of law or whether it's us in our lives 
We can only pass judgment based upon the information that we have. So we've been looking into God's word. We've been looking at the foundations that he lays here. And we talked about the difference in positive judgment and punitive judgment. Those things that are accepted and that bring reward. Those things that are rejected and many times bring reprisal. We began to look at, of course, and of course, one of the greatest positive judgments that we see is when God looked upon everything that he created and he not only said that it was good time and again, in the end he looked at it and said, it is very good. There was nothing that was not good about it. Everything about it was as it ought to be. And so as we continue to look and we've looked at these foundations and if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? The foundations are laid in the book of Genesis for God's judgment, for righteous judgment. And so as we looked there, we looked at the judgment that took place in, uh, in the Garden of Eden. And as we looked there, we saw that not only did God pass positive judgment, but we saw the first punitive judgment that was passed on man. We saw that God judged Adam, God judged Eve, God judged the serpent, and that God even passed judgment upon all of the earth. We looked at Cain and Abel. We again, we saw a positive and a punitive judgment. God looked and Abel's offering was acceptable, but Cain's offering was unacceptable. And of course, interestingly, and I'm getting tangled up in my own cables up here. Interestingly, as God passed those judgments, first of all, he accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. Well, first of all, when God, that was it. God just passed positive judgment. One was acceptable. The only punitive judgment that came on the other one was that it was rejected. But then Cain got all bent out of shape. <laughs> he was wroth. He was angry. He was mad. <laughs> Why wouldn't God accept mine? He accepted Abel's. Why didn't he accept mine? God had a little chat with Cain. To Cain, what's wrong with you? You know that if you do what's right, if you do what's been expected of you, then yours will be accepted as well. But he had a heart problem, didn't he? His heart problem because he was then, he was jealous of what Abel's had been accepted and his wasn't. And it was really a heart problem that led to him murdering his brother. And of course, that was what brought real punitive judgment from the case that he then, was cast out to be a vagabond for the rest of his life. But keep in mind that it all began in his heart. God was so gracious. You never, ever, ever. We, we saw in the garden when God passed punitive judgment, he never passes it without compassion, without grace. He never passes it to hurt us. It's always to help us. We moved on from Cain and Abel. And of course then, we also looked at, at the flood. We saw that, uh, you know, as, 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 as Cain and, and Abel went on in their generations, and finally there came a point when that God looked upon this whole earth, and man had become so, so sinful. But even there, we saw him pass positive judgment on this one called Noah, this one that was righteous in his eyes. 
And we saw him pass punitive judgment. And we saw God, by his grace, give man an opportunity to respond. He told him what the consequences were going to be. But all they did was mock this man of God. <laughs> they made fun of him. <laughs> they thought that, you know, that <laughs> this guy's a loony. I mean, he's up there. He's building this boat out here in the middle of nowhere. Who in their right mind would do that? Talking about water falling out of the sky? They'd never seen anything like this. You've got to realize, you know, from the natural mind, it did look pretty weird <laughs> to be building a boat in the middle of dry land, to be talking about water falling out of the sky that had never, ever, ever happened before. But he preached, he preached, and he preached they rejected, they rejected, and they rejected. We find that the flood came and this world was destroyed as it was known. And then started again. And of course, that's what we find. That's where we left off in, in, in God's word there. And we find this genealogy that is then uh, given that uh, brings us up. Chapter 10 is a genealogy for the sons of Noah by which the nations were divided after the flood. Matter of fact, uh, this passage of Scripture is sometimes known as the table of nations because there's about 70 approximately in there, which they reckon is about the right number of different languages that have been derived from these different peoples. In chapter 10, verses 8 to 10, there is an important change that takes place in our Bibles. Note the rise of this one that is called Nimrod. And Nimrod rises to power. And the place that he rises to tap to power is this place called Babel or Babel, whichever way you want to pronounce it. And it's in the land of Shinar. Now, interestingly, you'll note that the land of Shinar is also the same location of Babylon as we know it. And, of course, Babylon is related to Babel. They come from the same word, which simply means confusion. And it's the land of Iraq today, as we know it, where it's located. So this one rises to power. And I want you just to keep in your mind, as we think about this and as we think about prophecy and things to come and how that at this point in time, with all these nations, this one rises to power. And here in chapter 11, we find that the Bible teaches us that, of course, at this time there was only one language in all of the world and they were all living together. Now, what was it that God had commanded Adam and Eve in the world to go out and to replenish the earth? What was it that God gave man, again, the instructions to do following the flood, go out and replenish the earth? Man wasn't doing that. They were all together together. They were all together in one place and they seemed to come up with two goals that they had in mind. Now, this one, Nimrod, had come to power and all these people were under one government, one language, all of these things, and they seemed to have two goals. One was to build a great city. They wanted it to, to, to be able to build a city where they could all remain together. They could all make themselves of one people. They could show off their accomplishments. One grand, great city, but not only to build a city, but to build a tower. And they said one to another in verse 3, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly, and 
They had brick for stone and slime that they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. I want you to know, first of all, they were inclined to do something themselves to build this great city, to build a tower to reach unto heaven. Now, I know that some see this as another way to get to God, building a tower to the heaven where God was at, but I'm not so sure the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us that it was getting to God that they were interested in. They were building a tower to reach in heaven. It seems that certainly one thing, if you read about Nimrod, he was a great astrologist. He believed very much in astrology and the stars, and he had this great desire to be able to, 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 to worship those things. And one of the things that this tower was probably what was known as a, a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was something that was, in those days, was, it, was, it was like a, a long type tower that was built in steps. And usually when you got to the very top of it, it's where a temple would be where they would offer their sacrifices and things. So most likely, Nimrod had it in his power to build a great, impressive city where all the people could be together, where they would all be under his control, and they were going to build this tower that they could reach into the heavens and be able to offer their sacrifices. May I say, what they were doing was wanting to show off their own knowledge and their own abilities. They're wanting to prove what they could do. They were wanting to build for themselves a great city. They were wanting to make a name for themselves. We find that in the next two verses, God pays them a visit. They're getting on with it. They're showing off all of their power, their wisdom, their knowledge. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children have been building. The Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. This they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. God comes and he says, these people, I've told them to scatter throughout the whole earth. They're all together in one place. Certainly they can all communicate, and that should tell us something and he basically said, they've got a, a saying where I go to that may not make quite as much sense here, but they were getting too big for their own britches, getting too big for their own trousers, if you would. They were too big for their own good. They were so prideful in their own accomplishments and what they could do that God said, man, if I allow this to go on, they're so prideful, they're, they're just going to get to the point to where they think they can do absolutely anything and nothing is going to stop these people. What's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with what God is seeing? What is the problem here? May I say to you the problem, the root of the problem is the same as is always a problem, which we've seen it every time that God has brought judgment. Yes. I in sin. They were a disobedient people. God had commanded them to go out and be fruitful. Remember, the first thing that they did when they came off the boat was to build an altar to God. 
Now they're building their own towers, their own cities. They're doing their own thing, totally apart from what God has done. They're doing exactly the opposite of what, instead of going out there and scattering across the world and replenishing the earth, they're all trying to stick together as one people in one place. They've totally disobeyed the instructions that God gave them. And pride, <laughs> pride goeth before a fall. Pride is something that God detests. They think that they have become so wise. They think that they've become so powerful that they can do anything themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. They're going to build their own way to heaven. Pride almost always, inevitably, will end in rebellion before someone falls. You see, look at the picture. Look at where man was at. Rather than following God's instructions, they had totally gone against God's way, and God had come to the point that he had judged and destroyed the whole world with a flood, except for eight people. They came off the boat. We've got the genealogy, and suddenly here they are again. Instead of doing what God has asked them to do, they're disobeying God. They've become prideful of themselves and their knowledge and their ability and their accomplishments. And God says, boy, if I don't put a stop to this, they will never, ever, ever stop themselves. The so verses 7 to 9 is God's judgment that he passes. He says, go to, let us go down there and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel. Because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon all the face of the earth. God's judgment. He really did two things in his judgment, the speech and the scattering. This is interesting, and it really becomes interesting as we look at how people repeat themselves. Here, God confounded their language. Now, that was a whole lot more when you stop and think about it. That was a whole lot more than just giving new languages, as some would think. That wasn't just giving a new language, but he had to take away the language that they had. They could no longer communicate, so the language that they had been communicating in all this way obviously was removed, uh, and they were all given different languages to where they couldn't understand anything that anybody was saying. Suddenly, the only language they could speak was totally different from the language which they had been speaking all, your life, all their lives. I mean, wouldn't that be strange? <laughs> I mean, we are blessed as an international church, people that have all kinds of languages from all over the world. Today, I'm communicating in English. Some is being translated into Romanian. Some of you have other languages that you can speak, but here suddenly, that language that they'd been speaking and understanding and communicating in all their lives, it was gone. <laughs> they couldn't anymore. They couldn't understand anymore. And so... God allowed them to reach this point. And then the scattering. 
The Bible says he scattered them abroad. He had told them to go out there and to replenish this earth. They disobeyed God. So now when God brings judgment, what he's actually doing is making them do what he had already asked them to do on their own, but they had got entwined within their own business and doing their own thing and making a name for themselves. And so the judgment is brought against them. But I've said time and again, folks, this is God's judgment and God's judgment. Man's judgment comes for all. You know, people judge us for all the wrong reasons many times, don't they? And if we're not careful, we can begin to pass judgments in all the wrong ways. God's judgment never comes without God's grace. We sing about that amazing grace earlier. God's judgment is important and is vital for mankind because through it, in this case here, we see God's will being accomplished. We see the dispersion of the people which brought about the nations of the world. It was vital that their pride be put in check because they were going to utterly, totally, completely destroy themselves and write God out of the picture forever, which would have brought eternal disaster. God shows them that he is able and willing to bring them down off of their pedestal that his will and his purpose might be accomplished Folks, we've looked many times. God's ultimate purpose for mankind is their salvation. We brought death in the garden. When sin came, death came with it. And that's what Satan wants for all of us. He wants death. He wants destruction. God wants to give us life. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes, judgment, we look at it, we can say, wow, that was harsh. I mean, all these people, they were just trying to, to get on together and be one world and be one government and be one everything. And God comes along and just, boom, explodes it all. We find that God had a purpose. This is now the point of scripture. If you begin to read on from verse 10, you say, oh, no, another one of those so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Those things are just so unimportant in the Bible. We just got through one in the previous chapter, and then here's one again. What has God shown us? He's showing us the genealogy of Noah's sons. Remember that these sons that God had directed to replenish the earth, here God is, and he's taken us from Shem, one of those sons, to Abraham. Does that name ring a bell? The father of the Jewish nation. Up to this point, Scripture has been dealing with the entire human race as a whole. We find that it is at this point that that human race has been divided into nations and scattered abroad. But you see, he's showing us that out of one of those nations, he's going to call one nation to be his people. Out of that one nation, his eternal purpose for mankind to bring Jesus Christ into this world, 
is going to come forth out of that nation. God's hand at work, yes, through judgment, both positive and punitive, bringing about his will and his purpose, and that is the salvation of mankind. It did take dispersing them, putting them out of the Garden of Eden. It did take punishment against Cain and, and Abel. It did take a worldwide flood. It did take God scattering the people in the nations. We find that in all of this, we can see his divine purpose. I found it interesting. And you know, <laughs> I made the statement, I think it was Antonio that and I that were talking this morning. You know, I, sometimes I forget what I've learned. <laughs> I don't know if you ever do that. Sometimes I forget if I've ever learned anything. Sometimes I wonder if I've ever learned anything. But there's times after reading God's Word and studying God's Word for all those years that you see things in a little different way than, than you did before. The speech and the scattering here to disperse the people to ultimately establish the nation of Israel through which he would bring his son. In this instance, note that he used their speech to keep them from understanding each other. And he used the scattering abroad to multiply them as a people to call out a nation upon which he would build his kingdom. We flip forward into the New Testament, into the book of Acts, when Jesus Christ is establishing his church here upon this earth. He again uses speech, the scattering. You know, I've, I've, I've looked at a number of things. We've looked at the prophet Joel and all these things, how that God sometimes when we speak of languages in the Bible, that it has to do with judgment and unknown languages coming in. Here he uses the speech and the scattering again to accomplish his will. But in Acts, rather than confounding the languages as he had there at the Tower of Babel because up until the Tower of Babel, everybody spoke the same language. There he confounded the languages. But here in the book of Acts, he uses the speeches in exactly the opposite way that they might all understand each other. Here's these guys up here and they're preaching in their language, but people from all over the world are understanding in their own language. The same God that used speech to confound the languages when he established and went about establishing the nation that he would bring forth his son when that son established his church upon this earth. He again uses that speech, that language, but that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that they could all understand each other. And again, we find that he once again has to scatter them because what was the instructions that he gave to his church? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Get out there. Get out of Jerusalem. Get out there to the far ends of the world. Go. We find that people didn't obey. For the most part, they just stayed in Jerusalem. <laughs> they stayed together. They stayed in their comfort zone with one another in their nice little church there in Jerusalem. When they failed to obey, God once again scattered them abroad. This time, he scattered them abroad to take the gospel to every creature. Again, 
It was to build his kingdom. Chapter 10, verse 11, right through Genesis chapter 17, we find that genealogy dealing specifically with God calling out this man called Abraham. This man to be the father of the nation of Israel. God promises to give him a son called Isaac. And through him that he would establish his covenant with him and with his seed to follow. In Genesis chapter 18, God sends three messengers to Abraham's tent. And again, these messengers, they come from God and they're there and they confirm to him. Of course, Sarah's listening on the other side of the wall that she's going to bear a son, that his name's going to be called Isaac. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, he's 100 years old, she's 90 years old. Again, this is pretty crazy stuff. They're going to have a baby? They were way past childbearing age. We find that God confirmed, yes, you will have. These messengers, I'm going to come back in nine months' time when that baby is here. But then notice that as you read down through that in Chapter 18, we get down to verse 16. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? I know him. He will command his children and his household after him, They shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which is coming to me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord." You see, God sends these three messengers down there. And as they get down there, God has said, oh, how much should I really let Abraham in on what I'm going to, to, to do down here? How much should I really let him know about my plan? I want you to notice something very important here. Notice that in verses 20 and 21, the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, obviously, there were those that were crying out, look at how vile, how ungodly these people have come. He says, I'll go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry. I'm going to see if they've really done everything that I'm hearing that they have done, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Some have taken this passage to say, well, why does God seem to be questioning the sinful conditions of Sodom and Gomorrah? I'll go down in there and see if they've really sinned as bad as everybody says that they've been sinning. There's a lot of theological debate as to how that relates to God's omniscience and God's sovereignty. Well, if God really knows everything, if God is truly in control of everything, how could he ask such a question as this? Well, I submit to you that It is not God's knowledge of their sin, 
nor even his judgment of that sin that is in question. But as we read on, we see that it's the willingness of their heart to respond that is the question mark. It is, in fact, God once again showing mercy and compassion. He knows that they're sinful. He knows that they're ungodly. He could have just, boom, sent down his judgment and destroyed them and not said a word. He says, no. Let's see. Let's see if their heart is really beyond them being able. You see, God never brings judgment without his grace being present. He's giving them an opportunity. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God knew they were sinful. God knows we are sinful. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None are righteous. No, not one. He knows that all of his purpose all along is sending Jesus Christ that we can be made righteous in him. He looks down. These people, they have become so sinful. But I'm going to go down there. I'm going to give them one more opportunity. We find that Abraham gets in on this. You see those three messengers, they leave. They head down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think that there were three of them, right? But we find that there's two of them in Sodom. The other one must have been the one that had the job to go to Gomorrah. And we find that Abraham is still there before the Lord, though. So we begin to see him begin to intercede not on behalf of the sinful, but on behalf of the righteous. And he goes right down through it. I mean, he starts out, if I find 50 righteous, if I find 45, if I find 40, 30, 10, right down to 10, 20, 10, he gets down there and God says, hey, if you find 10 righteous, I won't destroy it. God already knew. God already knew. But he gave Abraham this opportunity I see three things here that I want to give you quickly. We see, first of all, depravity through sin. As we begin to look in chapter 19, and there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold, now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early, and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did break unleavened bread, and they did eat. Here these messengers arrive, and Lot sitting there at the gate, obviously in a place of judgment himself over, over others. And he invites them to come home with him, to stay at his house, that he's going to put them up, that he's going to feed them, that he's going to give them a place to stay. God's messengers are sent to the people. God always sends messengers. But fine, look what happens in verse 4 and 5. They're there. They're in Lot's house. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them, that we may have sex with them. We see the depravity of the sin of where these people had gone. God sends his messengers down to his people. 
And here they all gather and notice it is all the people. Whether or not they were all homosexuals or not, they were all consenting unto it. And they said, come on, send these guys out to us so that we can have relations with them. That's the depravity, the depth of the sin that these people had gone to. It was sin. And everybody was just going along with it. All the people gathered outside this house in order that they might carry through with this. Notice, and Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly, for goodness sakes, don't be so vile, don't be so wicked. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known men. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and do you to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. I mean, you know, I don't think we'll ever quite grasp, understand what Lot's compromise was here, but he is offering them his daughters so that they don't touch the men of God. We find that the ineffectiveness of compromise the hardness of the hearts of these that are involved in sin. Until in verse 10, <laughs> but the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Lot had compromised himself in such a way he had no effectiveness with them. But the messengers of God, they intervened. They brought Lot to safety they didn't just strike these men dead at this time. <laughs> they just, they were kind of wandering around, blinded, not knowing where they were or what they were doing. You see, God's intervention, both to protect his own and his final warning as to what is going to come. Depravity, folks, that is not evolution of mankind as Science so falsely called would, be, would have us to believe it is the devolution of man, the down of man. Sin always spirals downwards, downwards, downwards. We need to understand God, after he had divided these nations, here are these cities, that they've allowed sin to become so accepted in them that everybody's involved, that even Lot, the God's man that is there, has lost his effectiveness with them. Their depth of their sin, but their deliverance is through grace. That's always God's deliverance. And that's what you begin to see. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married, because he asked, hey, have, have you got any other family? You need to get them out of here because he, I'm going to destroy. He said in verse 13, for we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxen. Great before the, the, the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent to, it, to destroy it. They're not listening. Nothing else is happening. He goes on. Notice then in verse 16, because we don't have time to go through all the verses. And while they, he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters. The Lord being, what's the next word in your Bible? Merciful unto him. Notice what it says down in verse, verse 18 and 19. And Lot said unto them, O not so, my Lord, behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy. You see, the offer of deliverance was mocked by his sons-in-law, just as they mocked Noah. Lot, his wife, and his two daughters were shown mercy, and they were delivered by God. Lot and his family were allowed to escape the destructiveness 
that God was going to bring upon these cities because not just because they were sinful, but because they were so sinful, their hearts had waxed cold, they were not willing to do anything about it. He was giving them another opportunity. He sent his men. They had an opportunity to repent, but they rejected it. So God brings Lot out. And then in verses 24 through 30, we see his destruction. First of all, in verses 24 and 25, then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities, that which grew upon the ground. He utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They were gone, but not without giving them the opportunity. There was no way back for them. They had literally, they had stooped to the depths of sin, and they were not willing to accept God's grace and mercy Notice verse 26, but his wife looked back from behind them and she became a pillar of salt. <laughs> Lot's wife was destroyed too. You see, true deliverance can only be found through faith and obedience. She, she again, you know, God had told them exactly what they needed to do to be delivered. But she didn't. She didn't obey. She didn't listen. She was doing her own thing. Verses 27, and Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and beheld, lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. God's destruction through his righteous judgment, visibly seen by all to look upon it. And then in verses 29 and 30, and it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. And Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zor. And he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. You see, God's promise of deliverance. God's promise of judgment is visibly seen. But God's promise of deliverance is visibly seen as well. Sodom and Gomorrah. They're further examples of God's righteous judgment being declared, being delivered, that foundation being laid right here in the book of Genesis, not because God ever enjoys bringing destruction of any kind upon any people, but because man's sinfulness can reach a point that the consequences is so disastrous. And when repentance is not forthcoming, only judgment remains. God's mercy, God's grace are always present as they are here. Sin will never cure itself. Sin can only be eradicated by destroying it. The blood of Jesus Christ is meant for that specific purpose in your life. God has told you your sin will lead to your destruction. There is no other path. There is absolutely nowhere else that sin can take you. And it's exactly where Satan wants to take you as an individual. But your sin can be eradicated. Your sin can be destroyed by the blood of Jesus Christ. As we have looked and there are other cases, folks, but I want us to grasp and understand as we've sought to affirm what God's judgment really is, to see those foundations laid for his judgment throughout Scripture and throughout eternity, God is still God. God and God alone. 
can deliver righteous judgment. He'll never judge you wrong. He'll never judge you unfairly. You can count on that. He is the only one that can always get it right in every possible aspect. It is impossible for him to judge anything wrongly. You will be judged fairly and honestly. His judgment can be positive and bring reward. It can be punitive and bring reprisal. We find that as we've looked at these both positive and punitive judgments throughout the book of Genesis, I want you to remember these two things in closing. I made this statement to you. I've repeated it a couple of times. I want you to grasp it and understand it and hold on to it this morning. God is not looking for innocent people to punish. God is looking for guilty people to forgive. He's not looking for a reason to punish anyone. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. We've already read that it's not his will that any should perish. God has always given a fair warning. God has always shown great restraint. That's why they, they look and they mock, oh, you've been looking for him. But we said earlier, God is not slack concerning his promises. Men count slackness. But the only reason that he's delayed is because of his compassion and love towards you because it's not his will that any should perish. He continues today to give the warnings to show where sin will lead you, but to show you the way that he wants for you, what he's made. We see through these passages that he's judged individuals, that he's judged groups of people, that he's judged whole cities, that he's judged nations, that he's judged the world as a whole. And we find that there are still many of those judgments that are come that are still ahead of us. And we can just as those in the past, we can either heed or ignore the warnings that he's given. We can either accept and believe or we can disbelieve and reject. The choice is yours. It's always been yours. God gives you the choice. He's told you what choice that he wants you to make. In the Gospel of John chapter 3 I give you these words in closing this morning. Begins with probably the most familiar verse in all of the Bible. In verse 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. They don't want their sin to be shown up. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, 
Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Antonio, we were talking about that too. They that live godly will suffer persecution. Don't kid yourself. We don't go around trying to make enemies. We don't go around trying to be disagreeable with everybody. We don't go around trying to, to make everybody our enemies. But if you live godly, if you live like Jesus Christ, I say this to you again, get out of the habit of trying to hold on to the world and hold hands with the world and see how much of the world that you can still have a part in and get along with and do okay and be okay with God. You want as much of this as you can and still be okay with him. Get your focus on Jesus Christ. How about trying to see how much like him that you can be instead of how much of the world you can still hold on to and just be okay. Being a Christian is being like Christ. The world doesn't like light. If the light of Christ comes through your life, folks, it's going to condemn your sin. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. He came that your sins could be shown up so that something could be done about them. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. <laughs> You see, you got to come to God and let your sin be seen and let your sin be known. Only then can you humbly fall before God as a sinner. Not because I deserve it, not because of what I can do. I don't need to build great cities and great towers and make a name for myself. Lord, I humble myself as a sinner and I realize Jesus came so that I would not be condemned with the world. Jesus came, all of this, everything, all along, God's divine purpose for you is that you can be saved from your sins, that you can have life instead of death, that you can have it right now, that you can have it for all of eternity. Father, I admit that, boy, after reading and studying all of these things, myself, I, I feel pretty useless <laughs> Because I feel like, Lord, that I, I don't have the words to express what your word has to express. And so, Lord, I've got to depend upon you this morning by the power of your spirit. Can you speak to these hearts what I'm not able to speak? Can you help them to see, Lord, that in everything that we've seen, what we want to see is that, boy, your judgment is the only judgment that we can count on. Let us not be worried about the judgment of men. Let us be worried about your judgment and knowing that it's right and that it's honest. And Lord, you've told us what to expect. You've told us we know. We know that we failed. We know that the penalty for our sins is death. We know that we have no way out of that except through Jesus Christ. He came to give us the way. You sent him to give us the way. You sent him that, Lord, if we'll just recognize and admit, you will judge correctly. And in our sin, there's only one judgment that can come. Lord, there are judgments that we will all face. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, I want to be at the judgment seat of Christ in heaven, not at the great white throne of judgment. Lord, I want to be, though I know my failings and my weaknesses are great, I want to be judged based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not my own. And Lord, I pray 
I pray, you know the hearts of everyone here today. Lord, I pray that you could please speak to their hearts. Help them to see that once again, even today, it is by your mercy and by your grace, Lord, that you've tried to to speak the truth to them today, to show them that, Lord, there is a judgment that will be coming, and their sin can only be judged by death. There is no other way. But you always, everything that you do is to give us life, to give us an opportunity, Lord, to be saved and to have life forever. I pray that you would help each one this day have the reality of knowing that in their hearts and their lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. 